for the benefit of our guests, it might be helpful. Um, we've been working our way the last six, seven weeks through the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, and we're going to conclude the Song of Solomon this, this morning. And you may be asking yourself whether you're a member who's been here for the entire series or just a guest who's with us this morning, what in the world does the Song of Solomon have to do with Resurrection Sunday? Well, I hope to show you by the end of this sermon that it has a whole lot to do with the resurrection. If you will, turn with me in your copy of God's Word, whether digitally or in your own Bible, to Song of Solomon chapter 8. We're going to be considering verses 5 through 14, the very end of the book this morning. Now, I will give you a heads up. This won't be a typical sermon. I'm not going to be walking specifically through verses 5 through 14. Rather, I'm going to, on the front end, kind of walk through it, and then I want to step back and, and preach the story of love that I think this book talks about from the entire Bible, hitting the, the entire biblical story this morning. So it's going to feel a little bit different because we're going to make our way kind of quickly through verses 5 to 14, and then I'm going to step back and, and talk about the true love story that is behind this love story. But before we get to verses 5 to 14, let me just show you how I'm connecting this particular passage to the Easter story, to Resurrection Sunday. If you will, look at verses 6 and 7. Song of Solomon chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. The bride, speaking to her husband, says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. This is the climactic wisdom of the Song of Solomon. That human love is a mirror of sorts of divine love. In fact, this is the first time, to my knowledge, that the Lord is specifically mentioned in the Song of Solomon. And it's here, his love is compared to a love that is as strong as death itself. Now, is love really stronger than death? I mean, no matter how much a married couple loves each other, and this married couple in this particular song loves each other a great deal... No matter how strong that love is, one spouse or the other will have to bury the other eventually. Surely, in a sense, death is stronger than love, isn't it? Because death puts an end to love. Death put an end to this love in this book. Unless there's a more than natural love that's being spoken of in this book, that's being hinted at in the Song of Solomon. Unless there's a love that's not literally... Death, but is stronger than death itself. And this song, I think, hints at a greater love that's standing behind human romance and the total commitment with which God relates to us. It's a love that's stronger than death. It's jealous beyond the grave. It's unquenchable. It's fierce. It's not to be denied. And it's the love of Resurrection Sunday morning. This song is teaching us that our marriages are not ultimately about ourselves. Human love is not the ultimate thing, but they reflect something infinitely better. Indeed, part of the reason that God has structured 
and created existence so that romance and love and marriage is such a big part of people's lives is to give us the capacity and the vocabulary that we need to appreciate the greater love that is truly stronger than death. And that, dear ones, is what Easter is all about. A love that is stronger than death itself. A love that rescues the Son of God from the grave for the purpose of saving those whom God loves. And I want to tell you that story this morning. But before we get to that great love story, let's look at the conclusion of this love story in the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 5 through 14. I want to point out three quick things from these verses before we get to tell the great love story of the world. In verses 5 through 7, first of all, we have the overwhelming power of love described. I want you to look at these verses again. Look at verse 5. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There, Your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. And then we read the verses that we just read. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. What you have here at the conclusion of the Song of Solomon is the strength of this couple's love on full display. Now, for those of us who have not been here, guests with us, who've not been with us through the entire series, and for those of us who just need a reminder, remember what we've seen so far. In chapters 1 and 2, we meet this couple that is intensely and intoxicatingly attracted to one another. That eventually leads to a courtship in chapter 2 and 3 and a, and a wedding in chapters 3 and 4. It eventually leads to a consummation of their wedding and then a, a conflict that results in a temporary separation. That leads, as we saw last week, to them being reconciled to one another, proving that their love is, in fact, stronger than the conflict that emerged in the midst of it. And this song's last passage, here in chapter 8, verses 5 through 14, shows the couple returning from their getaway with the same awestruck question which first was asked on the woman's wedding day. Who is that coming up from the wilderness? And it's now repeated, though, the difference is that the woman is now fully united to her husband. It's pictured as a, as a new exodus, a new a new start of the relationship. Just as the relationship began in this husband coming up out of the wilderness, a picture of God himself coming to rescue his bride, his people. Now this husband, again, with his wife this time, is returning, coming back, fully reunited. In fact, verse 5 may suggest that the woman is starting to think about a family. Speaking of an apple tree. But yet, children remain in the future and are not pictured in this psalm just or in this uh, song just yet then in verses 6 and 7 we have the climactic wisdom of the song given as the woman speaks of the nature of their love itself the reason given for the commitment which seals the husband and wife together is the power the indestructible power of love what else is a, is as unyielding as the grave what other aspect of created existence could be compared to the grip which death has on each of us. But just because love is so overpoweringly strong, a couple in love must commit to each other in an absolute way. And this is the central wisdom of the song itself. To join what we might intuitively separate, 
that is undeniable, uncontrollable desire with unbreakable commitment. But if love is as strong as death, it's hopeless to try to suppress it. Rather, we commit to it. And this preciousness of love is a second reason calling for a completely unique commitment on the part of the bride and her husband. That's the first part, overwhelming power of love. Second part is the incomparable value of love described in verses 8 through 12. Look at verse 8. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she's a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. It was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Notice the strange way in which the woman's family receives her. Curiously, her brothers seem completely to misunderstand her position. They pledge to protect their sister's virtue and adorn her for whenever she might be ready for marriage in the future on the day when she's spoken for. However well-intentioned this might be, we have to wonder how the brothers have missed the obvious fact that this young woman is both physically and emotionally ready for marriage and has been since the song's first chapter, and she is now married. As a result, this relationship is legitimate and should be supported. Because she didn't give herself away before marriage, their marriage will be full of peace, of wholeness, of blessing. And then we read in verses 11 and 12, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. So here, two vineyards are being contrasted. On the one hand, we have Solomon's, which was hired out for money. And on the other hand, the girl's vineyard, which was not for sale. Her love cannot be bought or sold. It belongs exclusively to her husband. So we've seen the overwhelming power of love, the incomparable value of love, and now in verses 13 and 14, the book concludes with a description of the unending nature of love, where the husband says, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. And the bride responds, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. The poem ends where it began, with this intoxicating desire waiting to be fulfilled. Something even better is being anticipated. And it's that something even better I want to talk about this morning. So having looked at the conclusion of this song with its intense description of love and this love, this, this love that this couple has for one another, I want to talk about the greater love that this song foretells and predicts. It's the true love story of the Bible. I want to tell it to you in four scenes this morning. The start of the love story, the betrayal in the love story, the hope of the love story, and then finally the end of the love story. So let's begin at the beginning with the start of the love story. The story of the Bible is a love story. It begins with the story of creation itself. God is seen making the universe out of nothing. Light shines in the darkness and stars are scattered across the vast expanse of space. Galaxies come into being. And against this vast cosmic backdrop, we are introduced to a wedding. 
The love story actually begins before the wedding, though, in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible tells us later, in 1 John chapter 4, that God is love. See, love existed in God before he ever created the world. When it says God here in our English Bibles, it's actually translating in Genesis 1-1 a plural noun. In Hebrew, God is plural, even though it's attached always to a singular verb. So the grammar is communicating that God is a plurality that acts as one. There's something about God that is multiple, and there's something about God that is unified. And it's this shadow of the Trinity that we see emerging even in the very first verse of the Bible. We call this the Trinity, a loving unity of three divine co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a trinity of co-equal persons who exist in an unbreakable and eternal bond of love for one another. Love is not something they do, dear ones. Love is something they are and who they have always been. Love is not something that just came into existence at creation. It pre-existed creation and was the reason for creation. The origin of all things, creation itself, is an overflow of eternal love. A love that exists beyond our world and outside of our world, but has nevertheless created our world. The love that begins in God flows out to heaven and earth, which brings us to the second phrase in Genesis 1-1, the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, like other Romance languages, Hebrew has gendered nouns. In the Bible, heaven is a masculine noun and earth is a feminine noun. Now, we're meant to take away from that that heaven and earth are made for one another. That God, who creates heaven and earth, creates heaven and earth for one another to be in relationship with one another. So in the very first verse of the Bible, we get a glimpse of this central romance, this central love story that is going to pan out from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It will occupy all the Bible's pages. The story of a God of love who has created heaven and earth for relationship with each other. The love story then moves on to the wedding, which is a picture of this love and will be a pattern of this love story that God will play out across the pages of the Bible. We meet the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. It was not good for the man to be alone, so in order to address this need and fulfill God's purpose for the world, Adam was given an equal and complementary companion named Eve. And then, as the father of the bride, so to speak, God presents her to the man, and Adam responds in a poetic song, much like the Song of Songs itself. In Genesis 2.23, we read, This is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So the first human words in recorded history ex are expressed in the form of a poem, a love song, which the Bible immediately places in the larger context of marriage. We read in Genesis 2:24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Forsaking all others, the husband and the wife are bound together in an exclusive and committed union that is secured by the promises of their covenant love to belong to one another exclusively. So this begins the love story. 
that runs all the way through the Bible. Why does the Bible begin with a love story? Because the Bible is a love story. In some mysterious way, this start of this human love relationship, this union of a man and woman, is at the very heart of what God is doing in the entire universe. He's writing a love story into the fabric of creation. And in so doing, God is revealing the kind of relationship he himself intends to have with his people. Marriage is a picture of God's faithful love for his own beloved people. As we've read in previous weeks, like in Isaiah 54, your maker is your husband. Or in Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Is this how you see God? Many today see him as some sort of impersonal force, if he exists at all, or a sergeant major in the skies barking out orders, or a heavenly slave driver who needs a labor force, or a moral policeman investigating our performance, or a cosmic headmaster screaming at us to try harder. Friends, none of these is the vision of the God of the Bible. The Bible tells us that God is like a husband. God is like a bridegroom. God is a passionate lover. That is at the heart of who our God is. The mystery of marriage is one of the Bible's main metaphors for the romance of our redemption. There are many parallels between human marriage and God's divine marriage with his people. They're based on mutual affection and covenant promises and committed exclusivity. And it's that love story that we see beginning right here in Genesis Chapter 1. That's the start of the love story. Let's move to point number 2. The second scene. The betrayal in the love story. The betrayal in the love story. I wish I could say that that Genesis 1 was where the Bible ended. That you had this human marriage that was patterned after this divine marriage. And and they lived happily ever after. I wish I could say that the biblical story was marked by mutual affection and covenant promises and committed exclusivity on the part of God's people. But while God keeps up his end of the covenant and continues to love his people in the Bible as a faithful husband, sadly, the entire story of the Old Testament is of a people who are by and large marked by ongoing and rampant unfaithfulness to their heavenly bridegroom. God's people regularly and habitually cheat on him. Again and again, God accuses his people of being unfaithful, of having casual idolatry and playing the prostitute by worshiping other gods and following after their own desires. Perhaps one Old Testament scene will tell the story for us. Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 3 illustrate the point. In these chapters, God files for divorce from his people after a long history of unfaithfulness with them. Now this divorce will ultimately, was ultimately led to their exile and banishment from the land. In these chapters, God gives provisional testimony in a court of law. And he begins in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 2 by recounting the glory of the honeymoon that he had with his people. We read, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. However, since then, Israel is guilty 
of ongoing and unrepentant unfaithfulness to her husband. So God files a lawsuit against them. He files for divorce. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9, we read, Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. And then he brings exhibit after exhibit of evidence into the courtroom to show his people's unfaithfulness to the marriage. I want you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Jeremiah chapter 2. I want you to see some of these exhibits that God lays before his people. If you're in Song of Solomon, you just need to turn over two books to the book of Jeremiah, past Isaiah, and Jeremiah chapter 2. God begins to give exhibit after exhibit of the way in which his people have been unfaithful in the marriage and betrayed him time and time again. This is not a no-fault divorce, dear ones. God has legitimate grounds for terminating the marriage, and he gives at least eight exhibits of evidence in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? So God has, God's people have left the marriage, abandoned their God, and changed to another God that isn't a God. He says also they've left the spring of living water. Look at verse 11 again. My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've also broken off the yoke of the marriage, broken off their commitment. Look at verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Verse 21, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Notice verse 22, he says they're permanently stained. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. We read in verse 23, how can you say I am not unclean? I have not gone after the Baal. See, the people are denying that they've done anything wrong. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Now this is perhaps one image that is especially disturbing that God demonstrates regarding his people's unfaithfulness. A wild donkey in the wilderness, in the heat, in her heat, sniffing the wind. God's people have such a voracious appetite for anyone other than God that they are literally sniffing the wind, hoping to detect the scent of another sexual partner that they can have a tryst with. One of the things that characterized false religion in the Old Testament was ritual prostitution. When people visited hilltop shrines to worship pagan gods and to have sexual intercourse. And yet God says his people are doing the same things against him. Jeremiah 3 verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished 
By the waysides, you have sat awaiting your lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Simply put, God's people can't stop sleeping with other gods. We find similar imagery in the book of Hosea. God tells Hosea the prophet to marry a prostitute because he wants to give Israel a living object lesson of what they're doing with him. So he says in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Dear ones, this is what it's like when we say that God isn't enough for us. This is how God sees us when we live with perpetual indifference to him. Instead of walking with Jesus, we run to money, Sex, food, drink, work, family, and all kinds of idols to seduce us, that seduce us with promises of satisfaction which always overpromise and underdeliver. Both Jeremiah and Hosea want us to understand that while we were born for relationship with God, for a loving, close relationship with Him, all of us have broken that relationship through our disordered desires, our serious sin, and our spiritual adultery. Anytime we sin against God, whenever we are proud or worrisome or angry or anxious or self-dependent or ungrateful or jealous or selfishly ambitious or lustful or greedy or racist or idolatrous, we're unfaithful to our husband. In every case, we are choosing not to love God, but to love something else instead, which is the same as essentially cheating on our divine lover. How does God respond to this? Well, first of all, how do we respond typically? I'm afraid that naturally we all respond like Israel responds here. To all these exhibit, one after another, the evidence of their unfaithfulness to God, the reason God has brought them to divorce court. And yet, in chapter 2, they defend their innocence over and over again. In chapter 2, verse 23, they say, I'm not defiled. I haven't run after Baals. But her lie is exposed during the cross-examination. In chapter 2, verse 25 of Jeremiah, Israel admits that she has loved foreign gods. And yet still, she claims innocence ten verses later when she says, I am innocent. He is not angry with me. I have not sinned. Worse still, Jerusalem is starting to play the blame game as often happens when marriages start to fall apart. Each spouse refuses right to take some responsibility for their actions. In this case, Jerusalem has done all the cheating, but she has the audacity to bring the charges against her husband. When she says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 29, Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In the end... Judah's plea for innocence leads to her condemnation when God says, I will pass judgment on you because you say I have not sinned. See, even though we are guilty as charged and we know it deep down, we suppress that truth naturally. We say, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm trying harder. I'm doing better. I'm, I could be worse. God's forgiving. He understands. And all the while, we minimize our sin and think it's less than what God says it is. And thereby we, re- we reveal truly we are radically out of love with our husband. We don't even think that what he says about us is true. 
And that, friends, is at the heart of our betrayal. But there's a third scene in our love story. We can thank God that the Bible doesn't end there. Because there's a hope that runs throughout the love story that's in the midst of every scene in the love story. It's at this point that the love story gets truly amazing because as we come to the end of the Old Testament, we see God's people in disarray. God having not spoken to them for 400 years, having divorced them, having set them free from the covenant to go their own way. And we would think God's done. God's done with this redemptive plan. Or he's going to wipe them all out like he did in the days of Noah and perhaps start again. But if he started again, he'd get the same thing. Because just as Noah was a sinner... So any sinner he would choose to start again with would perpetuate the same offspring. We would think that God would just walk away altogether from us. Why would any husband put up with a bride like us? If he knows his virgin bride had become a brazen prostitute, why would he not kick her to the curb? Since it seems she's so desperate to stay on the curb rather than return home with him anyway. Because that, friends, is not who God is. When we turn to the New Testament, suddenly the groom walks into the room. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Christ. When John the Baptist explained his relationship to Jesus, he called himself the friend of the bridegroom, who rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, John chapter 3, verse 29. When John the first image that comes to his mind about Jesus, when Jesus comes on the scene and John is there to announce his arrival, he says, husband, bridegroom, has come for his wayward bride. And when Paul explained the work of Jesus to save us, he described it as a husband giving up his life for the wife that he loves. Familiar words to us, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. By this reasoning, the cross is, as Phil Riken says, an expression of matrimonial affection. Is that the way you look at the cross this morning? On Good Friday, it's a celebration of matrimonial affection. The sacrificial love of a doting husband for a beloved wayward bride. That, friends, is what the cross is all about. God's love comes with a grace so powerful that it cleanses his people of their sin and makes them pure again. And through his work on the cross and subsequent resurrection, the faithless people of God are fully entitled to wear a pure white dress on their wedding day. Not because they've earned it or because they've atoned for their own sins, but because Jesus has stood in their place and died to make them clean. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. See, even though by nature we do not love God, he is still in love with us. He says this at the very end of Jeremiah 30, in Jeremiah 31 where he promises a new covenant 
and says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I will build you up again. Even as he divorces his people, he can't give up those he loves. And after Hosea marries the prostitute, Gomer, she goes out and does what prostitutes do, what God said that she would do as a, as a picture of what his people have been doing to him. She goes out and pursues other lovers. Hosea 2, verses 7 and 13. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. But God tells Hosea to go find her and bring her back home. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. By this point, Gomer, Hosea's wife, must have been sold into slavery because Hosea has to buy her back in order to bring her home. We read in Hosea 3, 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leka of barley. Gomer was sold to the highest bidder who turned out to be the husband that she betrayed. Hosea paid the price to ransom Gomer. Hosea paid the price for someone else's spiritual adultery. And this, dear ones, is what redemption is all about. It's what the cross and the resurrection is all about. It's what Jesus did in his earthly life that is all about. When Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead three days later, he was the bridegroom paying the bride price. He was the wounded lover, pierced for the transgressions of his adulterous people. Friends, God is not looking for soldiers. God is not looking for slaves. God is not looking for moralists. He's not looking for good people with good intentions and good efforts and good works. He's looking for gomers who want to come home. He was dying to win win us back so that he could say to us what Hosea says in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know that I am the Lord. Friends, this is the love story that we are made to live in. This is the love story we were made for. And unless you embrace this divine love offered to you in the cross of Christ, in the resurrection of Jesus, in the living Savior that has lived and died and rose again to be your bridegroom, you will search for love in vain. Even if you receive the greatest earthly love, it will not last past your death. Even if your marriage is a blissful 75 years of ever-deepening affection, you will bury one another. We are on a love search as a people. We long to be loved and to love. And we will give up almost anything to have it. Christ gave up everything to have you. And you are the one that He loves. And you are the one that was made to love Him. So brothers, sisters, friends, all of us here need to be reminded this is the dominant story of our lives. That we have been created for a love relationship with God. That we have betrayed God times without number. And yet in the hope of Christ, in the hope of the cross and the resurrection, He has recovered us. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us. He has bought us so that we will belong to Him forever. And that's not even the end of the story. 
we come to the end now, the fourth scene, the end of the love story. And if we trace this full love story all the way to the end of the Bible, we arrive at a match made in heaven. Jesus and the church, the last of all weddings. This is one wedding that no one should miss. It will have the proudest father, God, who rejoiced in his only beloved son and then presents him a purified bride. It will have the worthiest groom present with the largest heart of love, Jesus Christ, who suffered and sacrificed more for his bride than any other groom in the history of the world. We read in Revelation 17 what we read earlier. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, we were all made to be married to the Son of God. In this way, the bride begins and ends with rejoicing. And the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. Genesis 1, a marriage. Revelation 22, a marriage. Revelation 21, verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we come back, having come full circle. Let's go back to the Song of Solomon in a second. The Song of Solomon is a massive contrast between the human love, even though it's beautiful, and the divine love, which is even better. Because here in the Song of Solomon, we have a book authored by a king who had a massive harem of disposable women, but whose song echoes the melody of another deeper and richer song of a faithful lover one who was greater than Solomon, who loved his people with a deep and everlasting and committed love. The setting of the Song of Solomon pictures Solomon, a descendant of David, working and keeping a garden city such that what was lost when Adam was driven from Eden is being recaptured by what this king, the son of David, is doing in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, which the Lord loves. The plot of the Song of Solomon is that Solomon is depicting himself and his wife renewing the unashamed, pure, and undefiled intimacy that Adam and Eve lost when they sinned. Their sinful tendencies are overcome by the son of David. And the hero of the Song of Solomon is not Solomon, the son of David. It's the true son of David. While the Solomon of the Song of Solomon was a son of David and worked and kept the garden city and overcome the alienation between himself and his beloved, achieving a renewal of Eden and Eden-like conditions of love and care. The man in the song isn't just anyone. He's Solomon, the son of David. And this hero typifies and anticipates the son of David who will bring about the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Jesus is the one who overcomes the curses in the garden. 
Jesus is the one who accomplishes redemption. Jesus is the one whose resurrection sets a new creation in motion. Jesus is the one who opens the way to the new and better Eden. Jesus is the one we must trust if we want to enter that new Eden in the future and experience anticipations of it in the present. Jesus is the hero of the Song of Solomon, and he is the hero of our salvation. He is the true and final Son of David who has overcome the alienation between himself and his beloved. He's restoring the intimacy that was lost between God and man when Adam and Eve sinned. He has cultivated a garden, and he has built a city to come. Let's follow the bride in her shameless love for this bridegroom and allow this sublime love in the Song of Solomon that's depicted here to point us beyond human love to the ultimate future marriage between God and his people. And so I close. There is a love stronger than death. Because... Jesus loved you all the way to death on the cross, but even more since his love did not die in the grave. And that's why we celebrate this morning. We celebrate this morning the reality that his death was the defeat of death, and therefore on the third day he rose again with the power of eternal love. His triumphant love for his own can never be extinguished by any doubt drowned by any sorrow, quenched by any enemy, removed by any sin, which means that we may very well sing this song of songs. And we will sing it anew one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The wedding ceremony is set. The day is on the divine calendar. It's by invitation only. RSVP in Christ, and I'll see you there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love story that is the Bible. The great story that you are telling of a God who created his people for relationship and intimacy with him, who nevertheless rebelled against him, forsook him for other gods, for self, and nevertheless telling the story of a God who is so committed to his plan, so committed to his bride that he would rather die than live without her. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your love for us was such that you did die. And your love for us was such that you did rise again. And your love for us is such that you are reigning now as our advocate and intercessor forevermore. And that your love will cause you to return for us. You will not leave us. You will bring us home all the way to yourself, all the way to the marriage, all the way to the consummation of the marriage, and all the way to the eternal bliss that awaits us on the other side. If anyone is yet outside of that covenant, outside of that relationship, living as a single person spiritually, only with themselves or with the things they have built in their own life that will ultimately leave them without a rock to stand on, Lord, may you draw them May you draw them with the cords of love. Holy Spirit, may you shed abroad the love of God in their heart. And for those of us who are yours, who love you, who believe in you, who want to love you more, we pray Ephesians 3, that you would show us again and put in our hearts again and increase increasing measures the height and width and breadth and depth of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray all these things in his reigning, resurrected name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.